Thank you all. Uh, let me say up front, and I, I know I say this every time, but I don't want to ever take this for granted. We really appreciate you indulging Mac and Julie to have a little time off. Um, I'm on the board here, and I know how hard they work. Some of you know how hard they work, and some of, some of you may not, uh, but we really appreciate you letting us give them a time away from us uh, so they can chill and relax a bit. So <clears throat> having said that, I don't think Mac likes me that much. <laughs> no, no, I, I didn't say he didn't love me. He's a pastor. He has to love me. I'm a member of his congregation. But I don't think he likes me that much because we're studying the God of power. And he let everybody else talk about stuff like joy, faithfulness, hope. And he gave me the topic of obedience. The one thing none of us like to do. You see, obedience is not natural. It doesn't come natural to us. And it starts when we were young. We were at the ranch and my granddaughter was there. At the time, she was two and a half years old. She's a big girl now, she's three. And her dad had bought her some very cool cowboy boots. They had pink tops. She had been out playing. She came in, took her boots off, put them in front of the refrigerator. At that time, I was barbecuing, so I was in and out of the house, in and out of the refrigerator. And I said, Harlow, take your boots and put them in the utility room with the other cowboy boots. This little two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old, looked at the boots. And she looked at me. She looked at the boots. She looked at me. Now, I got about three feet on this person. I got 170 pounds on her. I got more money. I got more houses and cars. I got more investments than she's got. I got more real estate. She looked at me, and she looked at the boots. She looked at the refrigerator, and she said, just walk around her. <laughs> what? Now, it wasn't irrational. I mean, if she could have me walk around the boots, I could still get to the refrigerator and she'd not have to move the boots. Everybody wins, win-win. But it was not being obedient. It's natural. Now, I reared her father, and I got to know her mom when her father married her mom. I know they're not teaching her disobedience. They're teaching her obedience. But it doesn't come natural to us. And obedience... While it's not natural, disobedience is. And it has been for a long time. Satan, when he was in heaven, he was God's favorite. He was God's favorite. He literally was the bedazzled one. But he was disobedient. And what was interesting about that is he convinced one-third of the angels to be disobedient with him and took them with him and got kicked out of heaven. Adam and Eve, they had heaven on earth. And all they had to do while they were in the Garden of Eden where they had everything supplied for them was stay away from that one tree. And guess who showed up and convinced them that they needed to be godlike. And that is the base root of disobedience when it comes to our relationship with God is we want to be godlike and make our own decisions. So they convinced Adam and Eve to be disobedient. There's an author by the name of Yuval Noah Harari. 
He's a professor at the Jewish University, at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He wrote a book called Sapiens, and Sapiens tracks our anthropological history up through today. He describes our humanity and human nature, and he describes how we are what we are. It's a great read. I don't agree with everything in it, but it's a great read. Afterwards, he wrote Homo Deus. Homo Deus, by its name, is, an, is a description of our humanity going forward. And as you can tell by the name, it implies that we're trying to be more godlike. And in the book, it describes all of the medical technology and, and the genome projects and all of what we are hoping to do in the future as we monitor our own bodies, inserting chips within our bodies so that we can follow white blood cell count, red blood cell count, insulin needs, heart rate, so that we get ahead of diseases or in some instances take diseases out of our DNA chromosomes so that we become more God-like. So ultimately, in our relationship with God, the problem is with control and power. Control and power. And we have a problem with that. We even have a problem with it when it's to help us. We go to the doctor, they give us an order, and they say, okay, you need to lose five pounds, 10 pounds, 15 pounds. You need to eat more vegetables and more fruit. You need to eat less meat. And when you do eat meat, eat less red meat and eat more fish. And what do we do when we get home? We go in the freezer and pop out that bluebell homemade vanilla. <laughs> we like to have control and power, even when the orders that we should obey are to help us and to heal us. So when it comes to obedience, we have to choose to obey. It's a conscious choice. Our study today will help us to understand why and how we obey in our relationship with God. And it shows us how God uses our obedience and turns it from something that looks like powerlessness into something that is powerful. And then we're going to see how God's power is enduring, not just for the moment, but enduring for the long haul. In our study of Psalms, we've been talking about the songs that were sung on the road of ascent. And these are songs that were sung as they walked uphill in their three festivals a year where they would go and have their religious celebrations. And these songs are not top 40 hits. They're not genres like reggae or country and western or pop or blues. They're more like a school fight song. These songs are designed to remember God's goodness maybe even remember failures, but certainly remember victories. And, and everybody sung them with gusto, just like we do fight songs at football games, particularly after you score. Man, everybody's up and they're singing, and they're singing about all this historical stuff that's included in the song. That's what these songs were like. And that's what they were designed to do, to remember God's goodness in their struggles as a nation. So what we're going to do is we're going to study this song, these verses in this song, where we, where we learn how to do obedience. We're going to learn, number one, about humility. And then we're going to learn about obedience. And then we're going to learn about the power that's generated from humility and obedience. 
Let's start with humility. Psalms 131, verses 1 and 2. My heart is not proud. Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with this mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Now, there are four points that are addressed in this issue of humility. First of all, in order to get it, you can't be prideful. You can't be prideful. The word that's used there is, my heart is not proud. Now, this is a, this is a trouble point for many people, and here's why. You ever heard, I got this? Yeah, you ever heard that? That's kind of a problem. I have enough, and I want you to fill in the blank for you, for you. It's different for everybody sitting in here. I have enough money to handle this. I have enough contacts to handle this. I have enough family history to, to handle this. I have enough smarts to handle this. I have enough investments. I have enough contracts, contacts. I have enough athletic ability. I have enough talent, whatever that might be, to handle this. And that's where we start with a problem with humility. We don't feel the need for help. The second thing for humility, you can't be arrogant. It says, my eyes are not haughty. What does that mean? That means there's some other explanation for God's creation or for outcomes. Test scores, I did that because I'm smart. Job, I did that because I'm good. Windfalls from investments, I did that because I saw something nobody else saw. Athletic ability, I did that because I'm better than everybody else on the football field or the court. Skill sets, I'm a better artist than everybody else. Arrogance is putting something that is of God to something other than God. My nephew came to the ranch to visit, and he wanted to shoot. So we gave him a 22 rifle uh, Winchester, put up a target, he took the rifle and pow, and he recocked it, pow, and he went pow, and he hit the target right in the bullseye every time. And he looked at me and he goes, am I this good or is this just easy? <laughs> Arrogance. I like the word they used, haughty. That is a word that we typically don't use. I mean, we know what it means, but we just don't typically use that word. It sounds like a word a Brit would use. So, so a Brit came to my, our house when we lived in just a few, uh, down in uh, Barton Creek, and she, she was brought up in London, and she was a friend of John Eda's, and she came in the backyard, and she saw all the bougainvilleas, and she goes, oh, my, your God, and it's so picturesque. Huh, that's a cool word. I know it's in the dictionary, but we just don't use it. So I thought about starting to use that word, but then I thought people might think I was haughty. <laughs> so we can't be arrogant, we can't be prideful, and we can't consider ourselves omnipotent. We're not omnipotent. It says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. 
this means there are going to be some things that we just won't know. In fact, there'll be some things that are too wonderful for us to know. That doesn't mean we don't do research. That doesn't mean that we don't try to advance technology. That doesn't mean that we don't try to explore. It just means that we have to be settled in understanding there are some things that we will not know. We're not omnipotent. And finally, we're not unsettled. It says, I'll be calm. I'll be calm like a weaned child. Now, a weaned child still is hungry, but they're not unsettled. They know they sit at the table, mom's going to provide them food. So they're calm. They still have needs, but they're not unsettled. They know it's coming. So humility, we've got to not be prideful, not arrogant, not omnipotent, and we are calm. Now, if we can't accomplish humility, obedience is going to be real tough. In some cases, impossible. If, on the other hand, we do exercise humility, then obedience is going to follow naturally. And let's look at obedience in the psalm that we've been discussing. Psalm 132, verses 1 through 5. It says, Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. That sounds like humility, doesn't it? He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. There are two things that are at play here. First of all, David is submitting control. Self-denial. It is an unnatural act. I would rather do my will than God's will. I would rather have the Bluebell homemade vanilla ice cream than do the will of my doctor. But David said, I'm going to submit control to God, to God. And then he submits his desires. That's placing your wants and needs secondary to God. He said, I will not sleep. I will not rest until I enter uh, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, what he's talking about here is the ark. What had happened, if you read the rest of the Psalms, is the ark had been taken away from the nation of Israel by the Philistines. The Philistines had it for a while. Things didn't work out so great for them. But the ark had never been returned to its holy place. And David said, I, I can't let that happen. I've got to draw God back nearer to us. Now, to fully understand this, you've got to know what was in the ark. What was in the ark? Anybody? There were three things. Anybody? What did he say? A staff. Aaron's staff was in the ark. Correct. That's when all the leaders put their staff in the ark. They came back and checked the next day. Aaron's staff was the one that had sprouted almonds. So he was picked as a leader from the tribe of Levites. What else was in the ark? Two more things. Ten Commandments that God had carved in stone. Put the tablets in, put them in the ark. There's somebody that saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> what else was in there? One more thing. Manna. Manna from heaven. They were obedient to God, to the Ten Commandments that he placed in. God, while they were wandering in the wilderness after leaving Egypt, rained down manna every day so they'd have something to eat. He sustained them. So the manna in a golden jar that's in the ark, the Ten Commandments in Aaron's ark. 
the ark wasn't God, but it signified the presence of God, and it was supposed to be kept near. And David said, I can't rest until I get God back near us. We want to be in his presence, and we want him near. And I will not rest. I will sacrifice everything until I get that ark back where it's supposed to be. Now, what we will see is what happened as a result of David's humility and obedience. Now we're going to see the power that results from it. And we're going to read the Psalms from the message, not the NIV, not the King James. This is the message because I like the words that are used. And I want you to pick up the power words in this reading. I'll give you a hint. They're in bold and they're underscored. It says, I'll shower blessings in Psalms 132, verse 11 through 18. I'll shower blessings on the pilgrims who come here and give supper to those who arrive hungry. I'll dress my priest in salvation clothes. The holy people will sing their hearts out. Oh, I'll make the place radiant for David. I'll fill it with light for my anointed. I'll dress his enemies in dirty rags, but I'll make his crown sparkle with splendor. Now, there are some powerful words in here. He says, if you're obedient, here's what I've got for you, nation of Israel. I've got blessings. What's a blessing? That's unearned favor of God. However that shows up in your life, it's called a blessing. And he said, I've got, I've got supper for you. Supper, what is that? That's provisions. He said, if you arrive hungry, I got you. I got you covered. Don't worry. He says, I've got salvation. I'm going to cloak the priests in salvation clothes. What is that? That's forgiveness of sins. He said, I've got radiance. Radiance, what is that? That's glory. And glory is something others can see in you. What else has he got for us? He's got light. Joseph talked about light last week. Do you know that light is undefeated against darkness? It's undefeated. If you have a flashlight and the batteries are good and the room is dark, you turn that flashlight on, darkness loses every time. And the only time darkness wins is if the batteries goes out, if there's no power behind it. If the lights go out at your house, as long as the generation plant pumps in electricity to your house, you can turn on the light and it will defeat darkness every time. If you have your house hooked up to a generator and you got gas in the generator, you turn it on, as long as there's power in that generator and pushing out power to your lights fixtures, it will defeat darkness every time. It's undefeated. And lastly, he said, I'll give you sparkle and splendor. Now, who doesn't want a little sparkle and splendor? Ah, but there are some other words in this verse, in these scriptures, referring to the enemy. It says, but I'll dress his enemies in dirty rags. Those are powerless words. Now, there may be enemies out there, and those who don't believe, and those who are disobedient, who appear to be doing just great. I mean, they may live on the big house on the hill. Their company may be rocking it every year, every quarter. Their investments may just blossom and grow. They look like they're on top of the world. But if they're disobedient, they will be dressed in dirty rags. There's no power behind it. 
Now, Jesus demonstrates everything in this song. He demonstrated humility, and he demonstrated obedience. And then God demonstrated his power as a result. Look at Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, let's stop there for a minute. We're talking about Jesus here. It says he humbled himself. Well, if he humbled himself, that means he did something that he didn't really want to do. He did something that was that was something other than would have benefited him personally. You can't humble yourself unless you're doing something you don't really want to do. And we know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his arrest, Jesus looked up to his father and says, don't, don't make me do this. If, you, if, this is, if it is your will, can you remove this cup from me? And what was that cup? Torture, death, and separation from his father. He had never been separated from his father. But then he said, but your will be done. So he humbled himself. Jesus, the man who came to save you and I, he was obedient even to death. Ah, but here's the rest of the story. So where is the power if he's a God of power and he's looking for obedience, where's the power? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that's tapping into some power. Because it says his name was exalted and he was, his name was put on the highest place above every name. And yes, there are some other names out there. You know what some of them are. He said, but I'm putting Jesus' name above all of them. And that is either the greatest thing that ever happened or it's the biggest lie that's ever been told. But then it says every knee will bow. Not just the knees in Lake Hills Church. Not just the knees in churches all across America and all across the world. All of them. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus is Lord. The knees that are in heaven, which we can't see. The knees that are in earth, which we can see. The knees that are under the earth, which we can't see, will all bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. For what purpose? For the glory of God the Father. You see, obedience taps into God's power. And God is asking us by this song, just like your fight song at your school, to trust in his work. He's asking us to trust in the work that he did in David. He's asking us to trust in the work he did with Jesus, who was humbled, and yet he was lifted up above all men. 
He's asking us to trust in followers today. There are people all around us that are being obedient and are receiving God's power. I met one last week. I've known her for some period of time, but I felt like I just met her for the first time last week. I've known her for over 20 years. I had no idea that over 20 years ago, her 20-month-old daughter was having seizures, some lasting 40, 45 minutes. Her life was literally in danger. She had to have part of her brain removed. I never knew that because she exuded power all the time, never concerned, always calm. That daughter is now 25 years old, living in South Texas, getting along just fine. Found out she, the woman I'm talking about, has nerve issues so that the nerves aren't firing the muscles and the muscles are atrophying. So she has difficulty walking. She's younger than I am. She has to hold her husband's arm if they walk across the lawn because she can't really stand very well. And yet, she powers forward. They're going to Banff, Canada. She keeps living. She keeps believing. She keeps being obedient. God's radiance and power is all around us. His victory is all around us. And by the way, it doesn't mean that we avoid trouble. It just means that we're guaranteed victory. Disobedience, on the other hand, distances us from God. And I'm not talking about the unbeliever here. I'm talking about those of us who call on the name of Jesus as Christ followers. When we are distanced from him, he, we are separated from his power. When we are disobedient, we're pushing back away from his power and the blessings that he wants to give us. Johnita and I went to Italy in April. We went to Venice, Florence, and Rome. And when we were in Rome, we saw all of the stuff that you're supposed to see in Rome. This was not a lay on the beach kind of vacation. This was one of those vacations, you, you up and you go. We went to the Pantheon. Show a picture of Johnita and I at the Pantheon. There it is. The Pantheon was built in ancient Rome, dedicated to all of the various religions that were available to you in Rome. At some point, the Catholic Church took over the city of Rome and kind of kicked out all the other religions, and now it's dedicated to just Christianity. Even though you see the front of it has a pitched roof, connected behind it is a ginormous um, dome structure. The dome has a hole at the top of the dome, designed that way. So it rains in the dome, the sun comes in through the dome, elements. And on the edge of the dome is a dedication of some aspect of Christianity as you walk around the outside of the interior of the dome. We went in, we put on the little earphones, and we walked around the thing. And I got to the, almost the end, and there was a painting of Jesus with Thomas, who who was doubting, of course, that he was, in fact, risen from the dead. And Jesus has Thomas' hand, and he's showing him 
the spearing of his side in the picture. So I took a, I took a picture of the painting, which you put the picture up as it popped out on my iPhone in the painting. All right, there's the picture. Now, I know that Jesus is behind that. I, I, I know he's there because I was there. I saw it. But when I took the picture with my iPhone, that's the way it came out because the sun was shining in through the hole in the roof and it was shining on Jesus just like that. So I had to try to figure out how am I going to make this picture show up on my camera because I know he's there. So we're going we're gonna to show you something and we're going to walk you through what happens next. Now, before we show you this, I am not Steven Spielberg, okay? So no judging me, all right, okay? All right, let's see what happens when I do something a little different. There's the hole in the roof. There's the sun shining through. And there's the painting of Jesus. But you can't tell that's who it is. So I moved in a little closer, and I zoomed in a little closer, and boom, there he is. He's kind of buff, too, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He's holding Thomas's hand because we're close. We can see that. But as I zoom out and I distance myself, he fades into the background, even though we know he's there. The same thing happens when we're disobedient. He's never left. He's always there. He just wants us to draw near with humility and obedience. And he made it easy for us because he said, look, all of these commandments that are in the ark, let me boil it down for you for, to just two. Love God and love your neighbor. And we seem to have some difficulty with just the two, don't we? I mean, it's not cool today to love God. It's just not. He didn't ask us to be cool. He, he asked us to love God. Now, this doesn't give anybody permission to be obnoxious, but stand your ground. And there are things that are happening all around us where it's clear people don't love God and we have to stand our ground. That's what we're called upon to do, to be obedient. But we're also supposed to love our neighbor. And why is it that every time I get up here to speak, there's something happening in our country where we're not loving our neighbor? He never asked us to like our neighbor. We don't even have to agree with our neighbor. We don't have to be of the same political persuasion as our neighbor. We don't even have to look like our neighbor. But we're supposed to love them. That's what we're called to do. Even when we don't want to. Even when our neighbor makes it hard for us to love them. If we're being obedient, we're supposed to love them anyway. 
So the question is, are we doing what we want to do? What our desires are? Or are we being obedient and drawing Jesus in near? Because if we do that, not only will we see his power, but others will too. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you have blessed us with the Psalms. You have blessed us with the songs of ascent. And in this blessing to us, you have shown us your power. And we've, we've seen that power can come from the most improbable of places, even being humble, not prideful, not arrogant, not know-it-all, not unsettled, doing your will, submitting our desires for yours. And you've shown us, not just through the lives of David, Jesus, and others, that if we do that, if we are obedient, that you've got power. And you'll make that power available to us in your way, in your time, but available. Father, help us to overcome fear. The fear of powerlessness. The fear of failure. And trust in you. And the power that you make available to each and every one of your believers. As you always have done. You didn't do it just for the moment. You did it as an enduring sign that you always have been, that you are now, and that you will be in the future. And for those of you, for those of us who call you our Savior, help us to be bold, loving, but bold. And if there's someone here that has never accepted your son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior, the one who humbled himself and was obedient to you until death, help them pray that prayer today, right now. And say, Lord, I do believe. I'm ready. I'm ready to humble myself and do your will, not mine. I don't know what all that means, but I'm ready. And if there's someone here that has made that prayer, with every head bowed, every eye closed, 
we ask that you do something to manifest that decision, something physical, that you raise your hand and say, Lord, I'm putting my hand up for you, not me, for you. And if you made that decision, we have people here to help you in the blue tent out the front door. Not to harass you, but to help. To talk about and to consider what's next. And we have a tradition here, as you put your hands down, we put our hands together to say, welcome home. 